Hello and welcome to the Haaretz Podcast. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer in Tel Aviv. At several times during the war, I've opened the podcast by saying that Israel stands at a critical juncture. But this time, the decisions that stand before the country's military and political leadership seem more loaded than ever because, potentially, they may represent the first major public break between Israel and President Joe Biden. As we record, plans for a ground incursion into Rafah are said to be primed and ready to execute, at least according to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He said publicly that he has ordered the IDF and security establishment to submit to the cabinet a combined plan for evacuating the population and destroying the Hamas battalions in Rafah on the Egyptian border. What is the Biden White House saying about that prospect and how might it play out if and when it happens? We'll talk about that with Haaretz Washington correspondent Ben Samuels. And meanwhile, as the Israeli military fights on in Gaza, on the home front, families and businesses are fighting for economic stability in an unstable and uncertain environment. Over the weekend, there were shockwaves across Israel's economic and political leadership when the Moody's credit rating agency announced that it is lowering Israel's credit rating from A1 to A2 with a negative future outlook. We'll discuss what that means and the political fallout with Haaretz economics editor and commentator David Rosenberg. All that coming up. Ben Samuels, Haaretz Washington, D.C. correspondent. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So it's all been about Rafah in the past few days. Rafah is the third remaining major Hamas stronghold in Gaza, dominating the crucial crossing and smuggling routes from Egypt. And there are also an estimated 1.3 million Gazan Palestinians, most of them refugees from the northern areas of the Strip who fled in the beginning of the war, who are living there, sitting there. What has the White House been saying and doing in response to Prime Minister Netanyahu's messaging campaign recently about the necessity of the IDF going into Rafah if Israel is to achieve what it calls its complete victory in the war? So the White House is very concerned, both behind the scenes and very publicly and explicitly. So it's important to clarify that the White House is not against Israel theoretically conducting military operations in Rafah. You know, they understand that these pinpoint targeted military operations is what the desired next stage of the war should look like. However, in terms of this major military operation where more than a million people are sheltering, many of whom have already been forced to leave their homes and whatever shelter they've been taking several times throughout the course of this war, you know, they really are stressing that Israel cannot and should not undertake such a massive military operation without a credible plan to account for the safety of these Palestinians that are taking shelter. And also, if this plan does indeed go into effect, that it guarantees that Palestinians aren't forcibly displaced from Gaza, which has always been a non-starter for the Biden administration. Are they listening very carefully to the worries of Egypt in this regard? Absolutely. You know, Egypt is a very crucial ally for the United States in terms of the entire architecture of regional security. And, you know, Egypt has been sending conflicting messages about just how far they're going to take this. But there are very credible reports and people in the senior ranks of the Egyptian government that are saying that this would jeopardize the Camp David Accords that have been really the bedrock of 
Middle Eastern security since the 1970s. So America is extremely concerned. You know, King Abdullah of Jordan was just in Washington, and this was very much at the top of the agenda, along with the worsening and ongoing humanitarian crisis in Gaza. So from day one, you know, Biden and Egypt President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi have really been in constant communication about how to secure the Rafah crossing and how to get aid into Gaza and how to prevent Palestinians from fleeing in mass into Egypt through Rafah. So, you know, this is very much at the front of mind of not only Biden, but all of the regional allies that America has been really trying to account for throughout the entire process of the past four months. Does this conflict, I mean, it feels like a brewing conflict. It's kind of out in the open between the U.S. and Israeli officials. I mean, if you uh, if you listen to Netanyahu, it feels like a real conflict on on what should be done here. Does it feel different than at other junctures of this war over the past four months? Yes and no. I mean, it's complicated. You know, obviously, American officials are growing increasingly fed up with Netanyahu. You're seeing very strategic leaks come out throughout both Israeli and American media about just the growing impatience and the growing displeasure, both on a personal level and on a policy level. And, you know, things are really starting to hit an inflection point, so to speak. But at the same time, there is just sort of a baseline of support that will always be there from the United States for Israel. So just because, you know, you see reports leaking that Biden is cursing out Netanyahu in private and he's calling him names and he's sending all these pejoratives and senior U.S. officials are talking about their regret of policy over the past few months behind the closed doors. At the same time, you're never going to see conditioned aid. There will always be a baseline of unconditional support from this administration toward Israel. And I think that baseline of support is just too often lost in the conversation about brewing tensions between Biden and Netanyahu. You know, I think a lot of people are projecting this sort of clashes, memories of clashes between Netanyahu and Barack Obama. You know, this is not Barack Obama. This is not the Obama administration. Obviously, they are taking some very game-changing measures, uh, whether it's concerning the settlement enterprise or whether it's concerning the oversight of foreign arms sales. But at the same time, these are still theoretical measures that haven't been put into effect yet. So, you know, Biden will always be Biden when it comes to Israel, even if the rhetoric is shifting in a way that may make pro-Israel advocates feel slightly uncomfortable. Do you see possible scenario where really Biden puts his foot down and says, don't go into Rafah full steam and the Egyptians are warning, don't do it, and Israel goes ahead and does it? Are U.S. officials actually worried about something like this happening? Or do they feel like, from what we've seen in the past in the war, when the White House takes a strong, firm stand, Israel basically usually does what it wants? You know, it depends on who you're asking, I guess. I think the United States would like to believe that the war, the public sentiment of the United States government should be a powerful enough weapon in itself. But at the same time, the United States has been pushing Israel publicly to, you know, shift into this next stage of lower intensity operations for about two and a half months now. So until the United States really qualifies this demand with, if you disobey what we are demanding, there will be consequences, it is really sort of a toothless argument at the end of the day. And, you know, if you ask senior U.S. officials, the U.S. has, you know, really been responsible for certain positive developments. You know, I 
couch the word positive in, you know, size 72 quotation marks. But, you know, without United States pressure, there wouldn't be any humanitarian aid going into Gaza. You know, Karim Shalom wouldn't be open. Rafah wouldn't be open. You know, the United States rightfully has done things that have helped the situation on the ground. But they just have far too often opted for carrots rather than sticks with Israel. And these warnings are falling on deaf ears because Israel understands that there aren't going to be significant consequences other than rhetorical reprimands. So until, you know, there's really some sort of conditionality on U.S. support, the warnings of the administration will just sort of be relatively ineffective. There was talk over the past few weeks of dreams of a grand deal brewing in the State Department and the White House involving a ceasefire, involving hostage release and Saudi normalization um, and a grand restructuring of the of the region. Um, is the Biden team still seriously dreaming of this or has it been taken off the table, given that we've seen now the makeup of the current Israeli government means that Netanyahu isn't allowed to even utter the words Palestinian state and that many of the conditions of such a deal, which would also involve the release of prisoners in large numbers, won't happen. Is this something that you see the White House still seriously working on or do you feel like they've given up? Well, not only are they dreaming of it, they're kind of counting on it. I mean, I think there's a real sort of growing consensus within the White House that long-term humanitarian pause slash hostage deal is the best path forward toward eventually ending this conflict as we know it. Conflict meaning the Gaza war, not the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But, you know, there is sort of a Rube Goldberg machine, triple bank shot kind of vision of how this conflict gets resolved, where the hostage deal leads to humanitarian pause, which leads to more aid coming in, which leads to more conflict de-escalation, which leads to Arab states coming in to help with post-war reconstruction, which helps to a revitalized Palestinian authority, which helps for clear the path toward Israeli-Saudi normalization, which is contingent on a path forward toward a two-state solution. And, you know, there's just all of these elements that are all contingent on the other. And when one falls, they all fall. So, you know, it is just sort of like so many other elements of this conflict, you know, it all depends on so many other things happening that are relatively disconnected from reality. But at the same time, in the short term, there are two major, major priorities. One of them is getting the hostages home. The other one is easing the humanitarian crisis. And the only way that both of these can happen in earnest in the immediate future is if this deal that is being mediated by Egypt and Qatar and CIA Chief Bill Burns and senior U.S. official Brett McGurk, if this deal actually gets into effect. So, you know, they are trying in earnest with all of its diplomatic might and all of its diplomatic force to make sure this deal goes through to account for Hamas's response to the proposal. Some of the demands are just a non-starter. Some of them give room for negotiations. And the U.S. is really, I don't want to say forcing Israel, but they're really encouraging Israel to consider the proposals in earnest and to work toward a deal. 
As November approaches, do you see the 2024 race, I should say races, not only the presidential race, but congressional races, increasingly affecting U.S. policy towards Israel and the war? I'll just hit a couple of points you've been reporting on. The Biden administration issuing a memorandum requiring foreign governments to guarantee they won't violate human rights with weapons purchased from the U.S., which got Biden his first big wartime pushback from APAC. And then earlier than that, there was the executive order, which cleared the path for uh, Israel's settlers endangering the stability of the West Bank to suffer consequences in the U.S. Do these all have the mark of uh, politics on it to you? You know, I think it would be a little cynical to say it's all about politics, but I think it would be a little naive to say it's not about politics at all. So, you know, I think, you know, they try to have a firewall between the campaign side and the politics side, but I think they are very well aware of how increasingly unpopular Biden's unwavering support for this war is, you know, 50% of his voters in 2020 believe that Israel's committing genocide. So, you know, I think this is particularly important with young voters, with Black voters, with Arab American and Muslim voters in key swing states. And, you know, you're really seeing both the political side of the Biden administration and the Biden campaign try to mend some fences, let's say. And, you know, I think... It's not as if Biden is going to restructure, you know, 50 years of foreign policy based off putting a Band-Aid on some fixes with, you know, 300,000 voters in Michigan. But I think there is a very earnest, holistic accounting for about how does this ongoing policy affect his re-election prospects. So that's one element of it. On the other side, you know, Donald Trump is out there saying that any foreign aid that the United States sends to Israel or Ukraine or whoever needs to be paid back in full. And because Donald Trump is the one setting the tone for the Republican Party, this is being unanimously adopted, including from some of the most pro-Israel hawks like Lindsey Graham. You know, if you asked me a month ago if Lindsey Graham would say that Israel needs to pay back $14 billion in aid as soon as it can to the United States because Donald Trump said so, you know, it really kind of boggles the mind. So that's the executive, that's the presidential election. In Congress, you know, this is really sort of the first election ever where Israel will become a top tier issue. You know, even in heavily Jewish districts or in district or in elections with, you know, a special Jewish flair to it, Israel's never really been a top tier issue. You know, Jewish voters have long said that Israel doesn't even enter the top 10 of reasons that they go to the polls. Because of the dramatic nature of October 7th and the Gaza war, it is immediately catapulting to a top tier issue. So you can really expect this to be sort of on the radar in every election, not just, you know, elections in Long Island like there will be today with a heavily Jewish population. But Israel is really going to sort of set help set the tone for what people are voting for in 2024 in a way that it really has never been before. And despite all of the hesitations and question marks on both sides of the aisle, we still got a massive aid package passed even just before we're recording here this week, right? Well, the Senate finally managed to pass, you know, $90 billion aid package after, you know, months of painstaking negotiations over the border security component only for Republicans to pull the plug on it 48 hours after it was revealed. At the end of the day, it still has to go to the House, and the House already declared it dead on arrival and a non-starter, and that they are going to pursue U.S. policy as they see fit. So, 
at the very earliest, they're not even going to really debate this in earnest for another month. So even though obviously this has been a huge roadblock lifted in the Senate and it shows that, you know, there is hope for legislation being passed in this town that has just been so plagued by political gridlock over the past few years. This doesn't end with Israel getting billions of dollars in emergency aid quite yet. You know, we still have a long way to go to get there. And there are still too many circles to square that it just does not seem like it will be happening imminently whatsoever. Well, you'll certainly have enough to keep you busy reporting on it. And also leading up towards November, it sounds like you're going to be a a busy reporter in Washington. Don't I know it. (laughs) Ben, thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up, a conversation with Haaretz economics editor and commentator David Rosenberg. David Rosenberg, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. So even with the war going on and all that it brings, the news of the Moody's rating downgrade fell kind of like a lightning bolt on Friday. It was huge news. It dominated the headlines in Israel for days. Can we begin with the basics of what is Moody's, what its ratings represent, and what they mean for the Israeli economy? Sure. Uh, Moody's is one of three of the world's main credit rating agencies. What that means is they look at uh, countries, uh, corporations, financial instruments, things like that, and decide basically uh, what their credit worthiness is, and then uh, offered a report card uh, or something very similar report card running from, depending on the agency, A++ or something like that, all the way down to uh, levels that are considered below investment grade. So what that means basically is Uh, they want to assess whether or not a borrower, in this case, the borrower is the state of Israel, uh, is going to be able to repay its debt. Uh, That's the bottom line. Um, And basically, their rating says, you know, the chances are that they're going to pay their debt are very, very good, or almost 100%, all the way down to uh, what we would call junk ratings, or for junk bonds, where uh, the risk of default is, is quite high. Uh, so what's happened in Israel's case is that uh, our rating was actually uh, quite high as it goes. On the Moody scale, it was uh, A1, and we were basically cut down a notch to A2 with a warning that uh, we could see a further downgrade in the future. And what is the direct practical effect of a downgrade on how the Israeli economy works, how it affects Israelis and how it affects Israeli businesses? In this case, first and foremost, it's uh, basically uh, a black mark in the sense that it makes us look bad. Uh, We've had a history since uh, uh, Israel first was rated at all of uh, successively higher ratings over the years. Uh, And this is the first time there's been a downgrade. And the expectation is that the other two big rating agencies besides Moody's, that is Standard & Poor's and Fitch's, uh, will probably do the same thing uh, when the time comes. Uh, So that's going to make the black mark a little blacker. Uh, Practically speaking, what it means is uh, if investors are a little bit more concerned about Israel's ability to repay its debt, uh, they're going to demand higher rates of interest uh, when Israel borrows money. Uh, How much higher, we'll have to wait and see, uh, but that's inevitably what happens. In other words, they're, they're basically expecting a premium for the risk that they may never see their money again. Again, the risk in this case is 
not much bigger than it was before, but that's the way the markets work. Uh, they have to consider make that take that into consideration. Uh, so what that means is that the interest rate that say you're paying on your mortgage it won't be affected at all or on a bank loan, but the interest rate that Israel pays when it issues bonds uh, will probably be higher going forward, which of course means that uh, the government will have to pay more money to borrow money, uh, which is not good for the budget. Uh, and especially not good at this particular moment because uh, with the war costs and the bigger budget deficit we're running, uh, Israel is going to have to borrow more money than it expected to in order to uh, pay for it, basically. So in effect, it's a double whammy. Uh, Israel is going to have to borrow more money and pay more money for what it's borrowing. Uh, again, we don't know how much uh, and how this will all play out, but that's the general expectation. So it's a both reputational and financial in terms of the And we're a little bit spoiled, right? We're just used to our economy being viewed as getting stronger and stronger and stronger in the era of the startup nation. And so anything that is going down instead of up, I think, is being viewed as a shock to the system. Uh, most certainly it is. Uh, you know, there's a big question now uh, what October 7th and the aftermath means for Israel in general, but for the economy in particular. Uh, my view, and it may be because I'm by nature very pessimistic, uh, is that this is uh, a likely to be a turning point. Uh, you know, the optimists say, well, you know, look, Israel is resilient. We're used to this. You know, we're in the Middle East. We expect wars and things like that. And uh, we'll get through this one. Uh, I'm not that confident that's going to be the case, uh, although, you know, this happy scenario may yet play out. Uh, but I think the more likely one is that uh, uh, Israel's security posture has changed you know, 180 degrees from the attitude of we can contain the military threats from Hamas, Hezbollah, Iran, and so forth, to one being, well, we're not so sure right now. We can't necessarily rely on uh, technology to protect the borders and on our superior intelligence, that is uh, intel, not smartness per se, to do the work, we need a lot more boots on the ground, which means you know more soldiers doing more uh, army duty, more reservists being called up, uh, more defense spending. It'll mean, as we've seen from the war now, uh, we need to produce more of our own uh, ordnance than we've been doing. Uh, we can't assume that America will airlift equipment, uh, arms and ammunition to us like it is doing right now, which means there's going to have to be a bigger defense industry that can produce exports because it has to sell its products uh, at home and so forth. All of this is going to weigh on the economy, uh, financially, uh, on business confidence, and on foreign investment. The attitude has been, at least since the second Lebanon war in 2006, that Israel is on the, heading in the right direction in terms of you know, national security, in terms of engagement with the world economy and so forth. And that affects everything. In other words, you know, how investors, how business people uh, look at Israel, uh, both at home and uh, from abroad. Uh, and that's been critical to the whole startup phenomenon, which is very, very much based on foreign investment, on startups being able to make foreign partnerships and sell themselves to foreign companies and multinational companies having R&D centers here, uh, if they begin to look at Israel as a big security risk, that's going to weigh on that whole segment. Uh, there's a limit to how much Israeli innovation and ingenuity can uh, outweigh the uh, security risk that potentially comes from this new environment. 
So a downgrade shouldn't be unexpected or terrible for a country at war. I mean, it's terrible, but again, not unexpected because don't countries in conflicts usually suffer consequences in terms of their credit rating? I imagine that compared to Russia and Ukraine, we must be in, you know, much better shape. Oh, we certainly are, certainly compared to Ukraine. Uh, I haven't actually checked the actual uh, story, but I understand Ukraine's rating was cut two days into the war. It took Moody's four months to uh, make his decision about Israel. Um, The answer is yes and no. Uh, It depends on the kind of war and it depends on the kind of country and it depends a lot on the country's finances. So you have to kind of take all of those factors into consideration. The fact is this is certainly not our first war in modern era. Uh, but it's the first war where we've seen uh, a credit rating go down. In addition, there's, of course, the issue of uh, other kinds of traumas, uh, COVID-19 being a key one in the last couple of years, which, from an economic point of view, was a big hit to the economy, much more than the war is expected to take, to administer, I should say. But the fact of the matter is, none of the credit rating agencies lowered Israel's rating uh, during that time. They didn't, during all the other Gaza operations, uh, or the second Lebanon war in 2006. Uh, this is unprecedented. So you have to look a little deeper into uh, what's going on. And if you look at the Moody's report, you, there's some interesting developments. Uh, the first one being it spends, uh, devotes relatively little time to kind of the nuts and bolts economic and financial issues that usually go into a rating. Uh, again, because credit rating agencies basically want to know is the bar going to be able to make good on its debt? And the way you assess that for a country like Israel is, you know, is the government running reasonable budget deficits? Does it have enough, you know, what's its level of debt right now? Is the economy going to grow, which means that the government will be able to collect more taxes and uh, have more money to help pay back uh, bondholders and so forth? So on those kind of very, very basic issues, uh, Israel is in pretty good shape. Uh, we went into the war, at least, uh, with relatively modest budget deficits. The debt-to-GDP ratio, which is something that uh, uh, you know, analysts at Moody's and so forth look at, uh, was relatively low. Uh, and the economy was thriving, certainly because of the technology sector. Uh the situation post October seventh obviously isn't as good. You know, the government is running up big, big deficits now. It'll be probably more than double the size of 2022, uh, 2023 this uh, in this year, and so forth. But the economy is holding up pretty reasonably so far. And even if you take into account uh, the big deficit that the Treasury is going to be running up for defense spending and so forth, the situation certainly isn't dire by any means. Uh, so on that account, and Moody's admits as much, things do not look so bad. Uh, what is troubling Moody's from the report is the government itself, basically. Uh, there's not a great deal of trust in its ability to manage the economy, and in particular, manage the war and cope with the uh, more difficult security situation. And I think that may be one of the reasons why our finance minister basically had a pissy fit when he read the news because Moody's was basically saying, yeah, the economy is doing quite well on its own. Uh, I might say parenthetically, it's very similar to the situation in general post-October 7th, that Israeli civil society uh, came to the fore. It did its job while the government uh, on almost every account failed. Uh, and I think the same thing is happening to the economy is, you know, the businesses, consumers, 
and so forth are uh, basically responding well and doing their job, uh, but it's the policymakers who are, for the most part, not. Speaking of the policymakers and speaking of uh, you referred to the hissy fit by our finance minister, some commentators are saying the reaction of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his finance minister, Betsal Smotrich, are doing more damage to Israel than the actual Moody's rating downgrade did. Can you talk about those reactions? I mean, you said that we're not in such bad shape. That's kind of similar to uh, what they said. But um, some of the reasons that they attributed to the credit rating downgrade were pretty extreme. Basically, the bottom line was that uh, uh, both Netanyahu and Smotrich basically uh, uh, dismissed the whole thing. Uh, you know, uh, Netanyahu said, you know, we'll bounce back very quickly and uh, everything will be fine. Uh, there's no reason to panic. Uh, uh, Moody should have taken that into consideration. Uh, in his defense, that has certainly been the history of past wars. Uh, but I think that... Um, uh, that's not taking into account uh, the very different circumstances of the current war and its implications. Uh, Smotrich's uh, response was completely irresponsible. It had basically didn't relate to the uh, Moody's report at all in any serious way. What did he say exactly? That it was some sort of global anti-Israel, anti-Semitic conspiracy? Uh, that was more or less the implication. He was, you know, <laughs> I compared it to like, you know, a ninth grader giving a Yom Ha'atzmaut speech, you know, about our wonderful history and great heroism and the wonderful things we'll be doing in the future. And say it was religious high school, he had a few words about how uh, God is guiding us and will protect us. And that's literally, <laughs> almost literally, what the finance minister said. He didn't relate it all to any of the issues. Uh, and uh, kind of dismissed, and that's been it since then. He hasn't said anything else. He hasn't you know, said, well, I was taken out of context or anything like that, although there's no context to take it out of. Uh, so basically, he's, he's saying to the public, and uh, it appears also to the Treasury staff, uh, we're just not going to do anything about it. We're not going to react. We're not going to uh, consider what it said and take measures. And that's pretty serious. I mean, you know, it's one thing to, as the prime minister did say, you know, I think they overstated the... Uh, problem, we'll get past this. It's another thing to basically give us a lot of, <laughs> to use the Hebrew term, silnut, and go on to do uh, and ignore it. Uh, and that's a pretty serious issue. Uh, one Treasury official, a couple of notches below, finally reacted uh, today or yesterday and said, yeah, the Moody's report you know, is professional, it's not political, they're not anti-Semites, and uh, uh, I don't agree with some of their conclusions, but you know, we have to take it seriously. The fact that the finance minister is not, uh, is very, very serious. Uh, because as I said before, uh, this is not the end. Moody's may lower our credit rating again. Uh, Standard and Poor's and Fitch's uh, will probably lower theirs as well. And that's going to have uh, many implications. You can't sit back and accuse them of being political and anti-Israel and uh, you know, uh, not understanding the situation. That's not an answer. It's certainly not a policy. David, as a final question, I'd like to broaden your outlook. You've been writing some really interesting analyses uh, lately in Haaretz. Anyone who hasn't read them should uh, go back and read them. And ask how you look at our current economic situation and prospects for the future, given our political realities uh, and the war. You've written some really interesting stories about the stock market's resilience in the face of the war, but also about how the end game in Gaza and the West Bank will play out economically and especially questioning whether the Biden White House's grand plans for peace are not taking the economy into consideration when it comes to the future of the Palestinians and how that will affect Israel naturally. 
You're asking a very, very uh, existential question. Uh, there are no final, final answers to this, uh, unfortunately. But I think uh, uh, you can say in very broad terms, the last 20 years have been for Israel, you know, 20 fat years. We've had, uh, not counting uh, uh, COVID, which uh, was kind of an imported problem, uh, basically uninterrupted growth over those years. We had the whole high technology phenomenon. And, you know, people have... Uh, uh, consumers have, you know, enjoyed relatively low taxes. Uh, you know, they can travel. Airfares have gone down. Cell phone costs have gone down. It's basically been a pretty good time uh, to be an Israeli from an economic point of view, at least. Uh, the you know, outsiders say, or anybody coming to visit Israel from a quote unquote normal country would say, yeah, well, you don't look like a country at peace, <laughs> particularly. Uh, and that's true, but from our point, it's all relative. Uh, you know, these have been relatively quiet years. Defense spending certainly is a percentage of uh, uh, the economy has fallen. People, until October 7th, were doing less and less reserve duty, uh, less and less regular army service, and so forth. Uh, and the future looked pretty bright. You know, we had the Abraham Accords, uh, and it looked like the normalization with Saudi Arabia was uh, in the offing. And I think this was all part of a view that was shared by many people in the Middle East, not just by Israelis, that uh, there was an alternative to war and terrorism and constant political upheaval. Uh, and the alternative, which we've seen happening in the Gulf, uh, especially in the uh, United Arab Emirates and to a degree in Saudi Arabia as well, is let's focus on economic development and creating you know, normal middle class societies and try to put our political troubles behind us. Uh, for Netanyahu in particular, this is a very attractive proposition because those who are advocating this view uh, basically wanted to put the Palestinian problem aside. <laughs> We've now learned that the Palestinians really aren't on board with this, it's certainly the Hamas wing, and that uh, the forces of chaos, are, if you want to call it that, or if you want to be more positive about it, about you know justice and Palestinian state, are not going to sit back and allow this to happen. So if you look at the situation going forward, it looks like we're going to be returning to an era of greater defense costs, a more um, tense security environment, uh, which has serious economic ramifications. It means uh, more Israelis will be spending more time in the army. Uh, defense budget will grow. We will probably have to pay more taxes. There'll be less money for you know infrastructure development, education, and health, and so forth. And I should say, parenthetically, we haven't been spending huge amounts on those things, even in the good days. The other issue is, of course, startup nation. That's been the engine of economic growth through all these years. Uh, you know, that's basically what Israel is. High tech is to Israel what Detroit one time was to cars, or you know, movie industry is to uh, Hollywood. Uh, that's what we do. Where we have a competitive edge globally. Uh, it's a source of employment, source of foreign investment, and so forth. Uh, it's even a source of um, military power because there's a strong connection between high-tech and military tech. Uh, the question now is, what's going to happen next with all of these, uh, with this startup nation phenomenon? You know, the more tense security environment is certainly not good for it, whether it's going to be, I wouldn't call it a fatal blow, but whether it's going to uh, harm growth for the tech sector in the future um, is hard to say, but certainly things don't look very promising right now. 
Uh, you have to also add uh, the government's uh, role in this. Uh, you know, even in the best of circumstances, uh, Israel has a problem with human resources, namely that uh, the schools uh, do a very, very poor job of educating Israelis. Uh, and uh, there are not enough uh, people leaving the universities with you know, engineering and other relevant degrees for the tech sector. The result is there's a serious labor shortage and it's likely to get worse in coming years. Even if you take into consideration that uh, the sector, which right now is very uh, Jewish and male, begins to hire more women, more Israeli Arabs, uh, more Haredim, if that's possible. It doesn't look like that's going to be a, a solution in of itself. Uh, so the problem from uh, the government perspective is uh, we basically have a government now uh, you know, whose priorities are not to develop the economy. Uh, we saw that with Matrich's reaction to the Moody's downgrade, which was not a normal reaction from a finance minister you know, interested in economic development. We have a government that's uh, still hot in pursuit of its political agenda uh, on the far right and uh, from the ultra-Orthodox. Uh, and that agenda, whatever else you might think about it, uh, is not positive for the startup nation phenomenon. Uh, so above and beyond the implications of the war, we have a bigger, uh, more fundamental problem about how to keep the industry growing uh, and how to develop human resources and the kind of society, I should add, uh, that encourages you know out-of-the-box thinking, innovation, and so forth. Because at the end of the day, what makes Israel startup nation is the fact that we have the kind of people who have all of those qualities. And it's very hard to ensure, or we need to ensure, that that continues to be the case in the future. Well, you sound almost as concerned as Moody's, or maybe even more so, David. <laughs> At least. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on the podcast and talking to us. My pleasure. And that wraps things up for the Haaretz podcast. Thanks to my guest, and thanks to my producer and editor, Nara Malkin. I'm Alison Kaplan-Sommer, and until next week, shalom from Tel Aviv. Shalom from Tel Aviv.